Good, and good morning, everyone. Christmas is over. <laughs> Even though we have the tree, Christmas is over. And Christmas is a good time, but if you're like me, um, by the end of Christmas, by the end of the year, by the end of the holiday season, that sort of starts... Like now it starts before even Halloween and and just carries on all the way through the end of of December. Uh, By this time of the year, you're tired um, and uh, and the new year is just starting. (laughs) And so um, some of you uh, and and particularly ones who are younger than me uh, maybe don't feel that as much. But one thing that I'm, I'm learning is the older you get, uh, the less quickly, if at all, that you recover from just being tired. Um, and uh, you don't, apparently. <laughs> so, um, so you, but you have to press through. I mean, in spite of being tired, in spite of being weary, you press through. And, and so at the end of the year, some of you are weary just from that, but some of us are weary uh, for other reasons, uh, for some for some of us, maybe this year, I don't know if, if this means as much to you maybe as, as to others, uh, but you, you may just be weary from, from the weight of, of your sin. Um, you just, you've just wrestled with your own brokenness this year, and you've been tired. Um, you're tired of wrestling with sin. Um, you may be weary because of others' sin. There's brokenness in your life because not even necessarily something that you've done, but other people or, or other circumstances. The world is broken by sin, and that brokenness leads to weariness. And so uh, perhaps your weariness comes from that. Uh, you've lost a job, or you're wrestling with life at the home, or, or you've lost a friend or a loved one this year. Any number of things. Maybe, in, as is the case for uh, the, the recipients of the letter that we're about to read the first part of, uh, maybe like the Hebrews, you've, you've dealt with persecution, uh, you've dealt with resistance uh, in your family or at work or in, in, in whatever environment you're in because, specifically because of your faith. And so we, we come to 2014, we come to the new year, and new years can be good, right? They're, they're these great times that we have to, to cast vision for what's going to happen, to sort of start over uh, to, to start fresh, uh, but, but we can't do that, right, because of the weariness that we already bring into it. It's hard to, to press forward, uh, and sometimes we don't even want to press forward. Uh, we, we want to uh, go backwards. We want to revisit the failures of the past year. We've done this already, right? We've set resolutions for the last year. We kept them until about March, and then we, we failed them. Uh, there's a Twitter personality, uh, a humorous guy named uh, Prodigal Sam, Sammy Rhodes, and and he had um, he had a tweet uh, that that said, "All right, so I've got eight days to lose thirty pounds and learn to play the banjo." You know, like just the fact that we set these these goals and. And we just miss them. And so it's easy to, to get down and want to retreat and want to go back. And that's what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. Um, the book of Hebrews is written to a people who are facing persecution. It's written to a people who, it, it's not even full on just extreme persecution yet. But they're starting to feel, they're starting to feel the tide change. And they're starting to feel the weight of their, their decision to follow Jesus, their identity in Christ, uh, bringing hardship to them, and they're growing weary. They're tired. And, and so I feel like this morning, that, that's, I woke up tired, and I thought, well, this is good. I can preach to myself this morning. Uh, but some of you may be tired, and, and they're looking to turn back. This is what they want to do. Some of them have already began to say, let's just go back to Judaism. With Judaism, we weren't considered atheists, right? Early Christians were considered atheists because they wouldn't acknowledge that there was a whole host of gods. They wouldn't acknowledge, for example, that Caesar was God, that he was Lord. They said only Jesus is Lord. And so the culture called them atheists. Um, but, but the Jewish people in that culture didn't experience the same persecution. Uh, they had some, some freedom to practice uh, that the Christians didn't. Uh, they were tired of being considered anarchists. 
They were tired of being considered rebellious folks. And so they said, if we go back to Judaism, we won't have to deal with that. If we just go back. And so this author of this letter, he's writing to them, pleading out of his love. He's saying, you're tired, you're weary, you're hurting, but press on. Press on into the next year. And that's what we feel like we have to do. Some of you, you, you just have to press on into 2014. And if we're going to do that, and, and, and if we're going to do that together as a people, and if you're going to do that as you go your, your separate ways, um, you, you're going to have to be anchored to the gospel. Uh, one thing that I'm very bad at, but that fortunately my wife and, and my, my friends, my, my coworkers, uh, they're, they're very good at is pointing me back to the gospel. Even when they don't know they're doing it, I'm feeling weary, I'm feeling like I want to go inward. This is my inclination is to just sort of, um, you know, go back into the shell, tuck and roll. Um, and sorry, that's from Turbo. You have kids and these things happen. Um, but but they remind me of, of the gospel and of the, the fact that that Jesus loves, and that Jesus has come, and there's, there's strength in the gospel. And so as, as we press on to 2014, we have to be gospel-centered. We have to be Christ-centered. Um, and I've just needed the gospel a lot lately. I've needed to be reminded of the gospel because it's very easy to, to try and press on in your own strength. And I think more than anything, that's our tendency as, as good old-fashioned Southern Americans, that's our tendency. We need to press on, and so we're going to, by our own strength, we're going to press forward. We're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are going to do this. We need to be reminded that, that our strength, our only hope, is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once you know that that's exactly what the author of the letter to the Hebrews is doing, He's reminding them of the gospel. If you could give a thesis statement to the entire book of Hebrews, it would be this, that Jesus is greater. Jesus is the greatest. He is greater. And so then he lists all of these different things. We're going to look at the first one just briefly, but he lists all of these different figures from the history of, of, of the religion, of Judaism, of Christianity. And so he says, look, there were angels, and angels spoke to people, and Jesus is greater than the angels. And there was Abraham, our great father Abraham, and Jesus was greater even than Abraham. He is greater than Abraham. And, and then when the people were enslaved, Moses came, and he, he, God used Moses to free his people from bondage. And Jesus is greater than Moses. And Moses dies on the mountaintop, but Joshua comes up and he brings the people into the promised land. He crosses the Jordan. He enters in. Not only does he cross into the promised land, he begins to systematically beat down the opposition. There's no other way to say it. He, he clears out the promised land for the sake of the people. He believes in God. He, he leads the people. They go into many battles and they come out victorious under the, the leadership of Joshua. And Jesus is greater than Joshua. And because of the sins of the people, they needed to make sacrifices. And so he goes to the sacrificial system, to the priests, the temple, the, the sacrificial lambs, and, and, and goats, and and heifers, and all of the things that they slaughtered. And he said, look, Jesus is greater even than them. Jesus is greater. And so now here comes the, the resolution of it all, the conclusion that he makes, and then we'll jump into the text, right? The conclusion that he comes is that if Jesus is greater than the angels, than Abraham, than Moses, than Joshua, than, than the sacrificial ceremonies, and, and the old covenant, if Jesus is better and greater than those, he's greater than your sin, and he's greater than those who are persecuting you, and therefore you can press on in him. It's the gospel. And we need to be rooted in the gospel if we're going to have a 2014 that is in any way reflective of what God has called you to. You need to be rooted in the gospel if these goals that you have set, if you're going to achieve them without either A, making them an idol, or B, letting them crush you when you don't meet them. 
You need to be rooted in who you are in Jesus, in the gospel. See, all of this is about Jesus. It's about Christ. We are a Christ-centered church. Christ is our head. Christ is our message. We preach and teach Jesus. We are a Christ-centered people. But, but you may not even know this. The world is Christ-centered. And so the author of the letter of Hebrews begins to talk about Jesus. And that's who we're going to talk about. We're going to spend a little bit of time reading through this text. And then we're just going to we're going to look at some of the implications of who Jesus is, what he's done, why he's trustworthy, and how our lives then are affected and should be cha- transformed by knowing this Christ. And so we're going to start Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 4. And so if you would, it's, it's customary. Um, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And, and it seems weird to say this uh, because all Scripture is inspired. It's God-breathed and profitable for making His people righteous. But, man, there are very few texts that I love more than the one that we're about to read, especially these first four verses. I read them and it, I, I just can't. You know, it's so amazing. Um, and so, uh, starting in verse 1, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications, For sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits set out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we look at this text and as we reflect on who Jesus is, why we can trust him, and what that trust leads us to, I pray that our hearts would be renewed that in the midst of weariness, we would find rest. That in the midst of of the desire to, to turn back, that we would press forward by the power of the Holy Spirit. Minister to our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated.
this text, this, this life, history itself, is all about Jesus. Jesus is the central figure of history. Jesus is the chief agent of creation. Jesus is our Savior. And so this text is all about who he is. And so for the first few moments, what I want us to do is reflect on who the Bible says Jesus is. All right? And so in this text, we get a lot. We get really the full picture of who Jesus is. And without going in particular order of the text, we're going to go through some of the things that we find out about who Jesus is. And so the first thing I want us to look at, it's found right there in verse 3 near the front of the te- beginning of the text. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. In other words, he is God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. We just sang it. That's who Jesus is. In, in John, we see um, in John chapter 1, the apostle tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and then he continues on and, and later in, in verse 26, I believe, it's right there near, near and there. Um, he says this, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelled among us. He made his house among us. He lived among us. The word became flesh. God became man and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Right? When you look at Jesus, when you see him full of grace and full of truth, what you're seeing is the glory of God in flesh. That's the picture here in in verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Think about this. When you, when you look at the sun, what, what is the sun? That's gas. It's a giant ball of gas burning miles and miles away, right? Um, and, and so it's burning gas. And, and do you see the gas? No. Do you see all the chemical reactions that are happening in the sun? No, but what do you see? You see its rays. You feel its warmth. The radiance of the glory of the sun. We see it and we feel it. And it's there. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. God is spirit. And those who worship God must come to him in spirit and in truth. But in Jesus, we have the fullness of who God is in flesh. Jesus is God incarnate. And so that means if you want to know what God is like. And so this is actually something that both of our children have started to ask now. It's like, well, what is God like? And we can look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? You don't have to be confused. Look at Jesus. And so God sees people who are hurting and broken, lepers, blind, lame, sick. He touches them when no one else will. And he heals them. God is gracious. Jesus is gracious. And Jesus enters the temple and he sees people abusing the temple by selling, by selling items. And not only that, um, by marking the items up and making a profit off of the people. And so what do we see from Jesus? Anger. And he turns over the tables and he kicks them out. He cleans his house out. Jesus is concerned with the purity of his house. God is concerned with the purity of his house, with the church. And we see Jesus, the great counselor, when Mary and Martha lose their brother Lazarus to sickness. He dies. And Jesus sees them. And Mary and Martha are both grieving in the same way. And Martha says, Jesus, if you had just been there... My brother would be alive. And Jesus is stern in telling the truth to Martha. Martha, And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I told you, this sickness will not end in death. Anyone who is in me, though he dies, will live again. And if he's alive, he will never die. He speaks truth to Martha. And you know what that does for her? It comforts her. Because that's the type of person she is. But Mary comes full of tears and says the exact same thing to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus weeps with Mary. 
Mary didn't need to hear truth in stern words. Mary needed someone to cry with her. So some of you need the truth, and you need it, you know, bluntly hit across your head if you're, if you're like me. And some of you just need someone who's going to cry, right? This is the, the constant struggle of, of my marriage, is that Melissa wants someone to hear and, and to emote, and, 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 and I want to fix and figure out, and I just need, and so sometimes I'm just not compassionate. But Jesus is always compassionate. And he is always empathetic. God knows you. God knows what you need. If you need to, if you just need a, a smack in the head, like God will smack you in the head. And if you need tears and comfort and just, just presence, God is present with you. And we see that and we know that because Jesus is the full radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. And so Jesus, not only is he the perfect representation of God, God on earth, um, he's the creator of all things. And we see that in the text a few times. Uh, we see it in chapter uh, 2, or in verse 2 of chapter 1. And it says that in these last days, God spoken to us by his son, Jesus, through whom he also created the world. God laid the foundations, Jesus laid the foundation of the earth, says in verse 10. And again, in John 1, we see this reiterated. After he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, that bit, then he says this, all things were made by him. And as if that were not clear enough, he takes the positive route, all things were made by this word, by Jesus. He then says, but if you need to go the, the negative route, if you need to hear it with the, the via negativa, the, the, the way of saying what he didn't do. He says this, and nothing was made apart from him. So all things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. That's a lot of words to say, if you see it, God made it. And particularly Jesus. Jesus is the creator of all things. So Jesus is God incarnate, but not only that, this, this second person of the Trinity, this Son of God, Jesus, He created everything. And not only that, He rules over and sustains everything. He upholds it by His hand. This is Jesus. And then God says this about Him, that He is the ultimate revelation of God. This is what God says through the author of Hebrews. Because you see, long ago, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. A prophet is someone who comes and says, thus says the Lord. Sometimes there's predictive elements to prophecy. Sometimes there's not. Ultimately, prophetic word is just word that comes from the Lord. And so you see in the minor prophets and in Isaiah and Jeremiah, as you're reading through, you'll see a lot. Thus says the Lord God of hosts. Or you'll see that in Genesis when the angels come. Thus says the Lord. This is from the Lord or, or Moses. There are a lot of people who were prophets. The angels had prophetic utterances. They were messengers from God. They brought the word of God. Abraham, he's called a prophet. Moses a prophet, all the prophets who came before. So that means this, that all of those prophets, uh, God spoke to them, but now, here in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He speaks to us through Jesus. And that's recorded in scripture. And so as you read the gospels, what do you see? The teachings and the work of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, as you read those, something begins to happen in you. As you read the end of Luke, as you see him on the road to Emmaus say, the law and the prophets, they were about me. When you begin to look at what all of the apostles do in, in, after the gospels and all of the epistles and in and, and, and Revelation, they're, they're taking the Old Testament and they're showing how it was related to Jesus, how it was pointing us to Jesus, how it was all about Jesus the entire time. And so now all of a sudden, it's not just that the prophets were word from God and were reliable. They were reliable because they were pointing us to Jesus. All of it is about us. And this is why we trust Scripture alone as our guide 
and source and measuring stick of truth because we have no need for further revelation. Jesus is the ultimate and final. When we say final, that's what we mean is the ultimate source of God's revelation. We don't need to know anything more than we know and have in Jesus about salvation and about how this world is and and who made it. We don't need anything more. And so when we close Revelation, when we end that period of time, that's it. Jesus has, has come. God has disclosed himself to man. And so we trust Jesus. We trust the word. God speaks to us through his son. Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. It's, it's interesting that John chooses that as the descriptor of Jesus. It's, as, it's, it's saying this. God is not a silent God. God didn't just create and step back. God is concerned with his people. He wants you to know him. And he wants to know you. Do you understand that? Um, David, David marvels at this, as should you. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I think about the heavens, the moon, the stars, all the works of your hand. Who am I? A man that you should think about me, the son of man that you should care for me. The creator of all things cares about you. You're hurt. You do not feel it alone. Your joy, you don't experience it alone. The creator of all things is intimately concerned about you. And he says it in this way that in the beginning was the word. God communicates. He is in community. Before he created, there was, he was Trinity, right? He's always been Father, Son, Holy Ghost, they've always been in community with each other. And out of his love and out of his desire to show how gracious and merciful and glorious he is, he created us. That's grace that you're here. You didn't create yourself. You didn't choose who would be your parents. You know, there wasn't a holding room for future babies in heaven where you got to choose who, you would, who, you, who your parents would be and where you would live. God put you here. Just like God put children in Africa and and in East Asia and, and all around the world. All of them, all of us. Why? Because he loves us. And because he wants us to know him and to be known by him. And so he he identifies Jesus as the word, the way that God communicates to us. Words are so important. They separate us. From all of creation. Look, other creatures communicate, right? And other creatures have the ability to um, instinctively communicate things to one another, fine. But no creature communicates the way that we do. We assign words and we assign descriptors to things so that we can communicate. We use signifiers, right? And, and so if you study linguistics, which I, I, I love, it's just fun to me, I don't, and you study language and all the different problems that come with it. So for example, this happens a lot. If you're married, I'm sure you, you, you know this. Um, but I have assigned something, a word to, to a specific instance or feeling. Um, but Melissa has not assigned that same word. And so we're talking and we're using the same language, but we are talking about two very different things. And then that ends up not going well for us or me. Um, because I've misunderstood the, the right context for the language. Other creatures don't have that problem because they don't communicate. Words are part of what it is to be human. And Jesus identifies even with that, and he speaks to us. You want to know who God is? Look to Jesus. You want to know what God is saying to you? Look to Jesus. No one else. And we see him revealed in the words of Holy Scripture, of the Bible. The 66 collected text that we call the canon. And so Jesus is those things, are, is, is all of that. He is the sustainer, the creator of all things. He's the perfect representation of, of God. He rules over all things. He is the ultimate revelation of God. He's how God 
communicates to us. That's who Jesus is. And so what did Jesus do? And so his title of creator already tells us one thing. He made everything. And not only did he make everything, he decided, I'm going to sustain it. I I keep it alive. And so in the same way that if gravity decided one day, personification of gravity somehow, that it decided one day, you know, I'm done. I'm going to take a little vacay. He holds everything together. It would all come apart. Gravity is keeping us in, in in, in a similar way, but in a much more amazing and glorious and mind-bogglingly infinite way. Jesus holds all of this together. Sometimes you feel like you're drifting. Sometimes you feel like all of this is too big for you to do. Well, guess what? It is. And in those moments, you need to say for a second, I cannot do this. But Jesus holds the world together. So he's holding me. Your life is spinning out of control. But Jesus holds you in the palm of his hand. And and trust me, he's not thwarted. He's not caught off guard by the motion of the universe and of your life. He sustains all things. He holds them together. Brad has said on many different occasions, and I've heard it said many different times, that in life you are either going into a storm in the middle of a storm or coming out of a storm. And so if you're coming out of a storm, brace yourself because that cycle is about to continue, about to go into one. And so the, the truth is when you're on the outside, you've just passed through a storm, you can thank Jesus for sustaining you. And as you prepare, as you're considering that life is the cyclical cyclical occurrence of storms and of difficulties as well as joy, you can prepare yourself for the coming storm by reminding yourself and writing in your hearts and scribing within you this truth that Jesus sustains you. And as you do that in the midst of, of the chaos and the hurt and the brokenness that comes from sin, both sin in general and sometimes your own sin, you can rest in the fact that Jesus created and he holds all things together. That's not the only thing he did because Jesus created. And and if you remember Genesis 1, he created things in a specific state, good. Everything was good. In fact, after he created humanity, everything was very good. Now, when we think of good, we have degrees, right? And so we, we say, well, it's good, but it could be better. And it always, we always, it always could be better. It always could be better. When you think of that word in Genesis 1, good, I don't, I don't want you to think of it in the degrees that we think of it. I want you to think of it as good, ultimate good, devoid of any potential to be better and then that very good kind of like and we've talked about this before and so if you don't remember here's a little reminder kind of like when Jesus says verily verily or truly truly when you say it once I mean that's truly but when you say it twice it's as true as it can be no truer statement can be said truly truly well think of very good as good good like it cannot be better No better thing can be than what God has created. It was very good in the state that God created it. But as a result of our desire to be God, to deny God who he is, to be autonomous rulers of ourself, to exchange the truth of God that he is Lord and that we are his people for the lie that we can be God. Because of that exchange, because of that sin, brokenness has entered the world. Sin has entered the world. And so everything is off course, but not only that, you are from birth sinful. I am from birth sinful. And that sin does something very, very damaging to us. A lot of times when we think about sin, this is the context that we think about it in. We think about sin equals hell. Right? That's that's how we approach it. So 
if I sin, I go to hell, or these sins send you to hell. And, and that is what we think about as the ultimate consequence or punishment of sin. But I want you to think about something right now, right here and now, about that sin does. Uh, sin disrupts your ability to hear from or be in the presence of God. So now, if you remember, Jesus is the word of God because ultimately God wants to commune with you right now. God wants you to experience his presence. God speaks to you. God is a communicating God. So he doesn't just create, he also speaks to us. And sin makes it impossible for you to hear clearly from God. Right now. Which means that as you live in the brokenness of sin, as you live in unrepentant sin, as you experience the sin of the world around you and the brokenness of the world around you, you are unable to hear truth from God as he wants you to hear it. You hear little fragments and little snippets. And, and, and now here's the thing is some of you aren't Christians. And so, yes, I'm talking to you, but many of you would claim Christianity. I'm talking to us as well. As Christians, we are meant to commune with God. The Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we are with God. But as you sin, even as a Christian, your sensitivity to the Spirit, that means your ability to sense God's presence with you, to hear from God, uh, it's broken. It's hindered by your sin. And so that's why so many of you who have been in sin, or maybe you're in sin now, this seems familiar to you. I read scripture, but it is just words. And I want to pray. Because I know I should, but I have no desire to pray. I can't remember the last time I prayed. And I don't know when I'll pray again. They're just words. Now, there's a difference between that and praying and getting distracted because you're a human being or praying and falling asleep because you waited until midnight to start praying or reading your Bible and just saying, I, I don't know. I'll wait till Brad preaches it on Sunday because I don't know what's going on here. There's a difference between that and just a, a coldness, a deadness to the word of God and to prayer. And sin does that even in the hearts of believers. It is deadly. We cannot underestimate, as David said, we are, we are worse than we ever, ever dared imagine. We are worse than that. Uh, great Charles Spurgeon quote. He said, when somebody speaks ill of you, don't, don't let it get you down because you're far worse than they could ever know. And he would say that of himself, and isn't it true? Like, we do, we catch feelings so easily, but then at the end of the day, like, you kind of sit back and you're like, yeah, that is me, and worse. Like, if they only knew, right? You know, if, if this screen was projecting, like, the, the sum total of my thoughts and my actions over the last, I don't know, day, you know, if it was projecting that while I preached, you guys would throw me out as a fraud. <laughs> You would because I'm sinful and I need the gospel. It's not, it's, it, there's nothing I can do. But this is so amazing. Jesus made purification for our sin. Verse 3 again. After making purification for sins. How did he do that? Look, the Bible is very clear on how Jesus made purification for sin. Jesus was in heaven. He was God. But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something that he was going to hold on to at all costs. But in humble obedience, he emptied himself and took on the form of a man, the likeness of man. Emmanuel, God with us, the word became flesh dwelt among us. Not only that, he lived a perfect life. This is why we have the Gospels. We have this chronicling of Jesus being tested and tried over and over again. Hebrews unpacks this in mind-blowing ways as you go into later chapters. It says that he was tempted in every manner that we are and yet was without sin. All right, so before you're kind of like, well, that's kind of impossible. 
you know, Jesus couldn't have been tempted to defraud a Fortune 500 company because there wasn't one, right? Every manner of sin. And the Bible says that all the sin that you, that you experience, all the temptation you experience, and so, so listen to this and, and consider it in your life, falls into one of three categories. Either the lust of the flesh, my, I want to be satisfied. There's an urge, a, com, a, a compulsion that I have that I'm just going to satisfy. And so whether it's sexual lust or whether it's gluttony or alcoholism, all of these things, what do they fall under? The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. Right? You see things and you covet. You see things and you want. You see things and what do you begin to do? You begin to exchange the truth of God that everything I've given you is what you need. And that if there was anything better for you, divine love would have already given it to you. You trade that truth for the lie that you need. Right? Again, if you have kids, you know this. It's very quick that you can flip-flop a need for a want. You know, I need a new video game. You're not going to die without a new video game. That is not a need. You want a video game. You know, I need a promotion. You want a promotion. God will sustain you in spite of you not getting a promotion. Promotions are good things, yes. But God may not have for you to get a promotion right now or ever. But the truth is that God loves you and has given you more than you need. All you have is in Jesus. All you need is in Jesus. And what's more is if in the midst of not getting promotion, in the midst of hardship and things working against you, this is the promise of God, that if you are faithful to follow Jesus in this, there will come a day when he will lavish upon you riches that make that promotion look foolish. You will be in his presence, free from sin and the glories of heaven forever. And then you have to ask yourself, well, how mature am I? Am I the kid who would rather play in the mud because it's visible than wait and get in the van and believe the promise of his parents that we're going to the beach? Would you rather trade the mud that's here and now for the beach? Or would you be mature like in a... This is one of the marks of maturity in kids is when they're willing to delay gratification. And so you're willing to say, that mud looks fun to play in. But there's a beach coming. And I'll hold out for that. I'll trust my parents. Hold out for the beach. Right? The lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life. Pride. Ultimately, pride. So you get into arguments with people, and then you find yourself, you're like, I'm arguing this just to be right. There's no more principle in here except for the principle of I have to be right. Pride. All of us know pride, and all of us need to look no further than ourselves to, to see it. And all of its all of its ugly, divisive power. Pride. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Every temptation falls into one of those categories, right? It was the first temptation. Think about Eve with the serpent. Look at this. Look at this fruit. Look at it. Doesn't it look good to eat, right? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. If you eat it, you'll be godlike, pride. That's how temptation has always worked. And so Jesus then is tempted by Satan in the wilderness and go reread it. That's what it is. Hey, throw yourself off of this. Be proud. Angels will catch you. Look out. See everything. I'll give it to you. Pride, uh, lust of the, the eyes. Here, turn these rocks to bread. Eat it. Lust of the flesh. Pride of life. Every manner in which you have been tempted, Jesus has also been tempted, except without sin. And therefore, his perfect life then makes him the perfect priest, the perfect temple and the perfect sacrifice. If you're like temple, just keep reading Hebrews. One of the, it's a great book. Oh man, it will. No book has changed my walk with the Lord more than studying through the book of Hebrews. I'll just say that. But but all those things, 
Um, he's the perfect priest, temple, and sacrifice. And so Jesus then, even though he's perfect, even though he's already condescended to, to take on the form of man, he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross for you. To make purification for sins. Because you see, without the shedding of blood, there cannot be the forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, the blood of rams and goats and sheep and heifers, they're not enough to make purification for our sin. And so we needed the blood of a spotless lamb. We needed the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus became our spotless lamb on the cross by his bloodshed, made purification for your sin. Because he loves you. And because he wants to be in a relationship with you. He died for us. And not only that. God raised him from the dead. So the Bible says that after he made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels as as the name that he has inherited is to theirs. So what God says is now in this, because of his obedience, because he's humbled to death, God raised him from the dead. This is important. We'll come back to this. But God raised him from the dead. And not only that, he has ascended into glory. God gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, not it's your name, not at the name of any ruler or power or principality of the earth, but that at the, ever, at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now there are two ways that they'll do it. They will either do it willingly or they will do it in the horror of the mistake that they've made. So in this moment, you have the opportunity to say this. Wow. Jesus created, he sustains, and he's made purification for our sins. He loves me. He is Lord. You can confess with your lips. You can bend your knee now, your heart. Or you can do it later. That choice has been given to you. But he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's resurrected from the grave. He's ascended to heaven, and he is there. Right, so this is who Jesus is. Now, this is who the Bible says Jesus is, but the question becomes, well, how can we believe that? What verification do we have? Well, right here in the book of Hebrews, in these first chapters, we've seen three things that verify who Jesus is. First is God. For which of, to which of the angels, or about which of the angels, has God ever said, you're my son? God speaks of Jesus, and he speaks all through the scriptures about it. What you'll find interesting is if you look up the cross-references to these, many of these are from the Psalms. And when you read them in their context, it seems as though maybe they're talking about David or a child of David. But then as you read even further, you begin to realize some of these things can't be about David. For example, he can't be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which, you're my son, today I've begotten you. You know, these things, they can't make sense. The Lord says to my Lord, well, who's Lord? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's verse 13 of Hebrews, but it's also in the Psalms. It's uh, Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? Psalm 110. And and now you think it's about David, but then all of a sudden it switches and says you're a priest forever. David can't be that. You read through all these things where God is talking about Jesus and you can't see it until he's come but then you realize Jesus is the son begotten not made. Jesus is the Lord of all things. He's higher than the angels. God says to the angels worship Jesus. If the angels worship him how much more should we worship him? God vouches for Jesus. But not only does God vouch for Jesus, the angels do. You see, all of the angels' prophecy 
all of the word from the Lord that we get, all, I'm going to broaden this and not just say angels. I'm going to say angels and the prophets. All of Scripture points to Jesus and vouches for him. The Old Testament says Jesus is coming. The New Testament says Jesus has come. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament says look for him. The New Testament says see that was him. That is the one we've been waiting for. Now if you're an unbeliever, I'm going to talk to you specifically here. Because this is great, what the author of Hebrews does in, in chapter 2. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. You need to hear this. But it's particularly if you're saying, yeah, but isn't that circular? Isn't the Bible says Jesus is true? Huh? surprise. You know? Like, I, I get it. I get the claims that we're making. I get that the claims that we're making are hard to believe. They're hard to swallow. So there was a God. He made everything. But then he put on a man suit. Then he was perfect and died on the cross, but then he rose again, and all this happens to just be written in one book that is what tells you that that's what happened, but also verifies it. Seems pretty silly. Um, Also this. Not only does God in in the scriptures verify, but history does. Now, I want you to to consider this for just a second. Um, In chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 2, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, that's Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who who heard. Right? It was attested to us by those who who heard. Um, This is something very similar to what Paul does in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. And then he begins to list off a whole bunch of people who witnessed Jesus resurrected. What Paul does, what the author of the Hebrews does, what the Bible is very concerned with, more concerned, I mean, just consider this for a moment. No other religion or religious text is as concerned with its historical verifiability, with its historicity, with you being able to verify its claims. No other, no other, religious, um, uh, no other religion, no other text is as concerned with it as Christianity and the Bible are. All throughout this, there, there are markers that would have been for the people who read it, evidence that you could verify this. These are people you go to. So, um, so the author of Hebrews says right here, uh, that <clears throat> that it was witnessed, it was attested to us by those who saw. And so the idea is that you could say to the author of Hebrews, well, who saw? Who was it? Go see it. Um, but let's, let's get, get out of Hebrews for a second, and you'll have to f- forgive me as I uh, pull up 1 Corinthians 15. All right, and so... Um, Paul says to the church in Corinth that we believe the resurrection as a historical fact. If there was not a historical event of Jesus raising from the dead, there would be no Christianity. In fact, if Jesus didn't bodily raise from the dead, if Jesus wasn't an actual figure, and so you need, one thing you need to know is now right here, even as Paul is writing, some 60 years after the resurrection, right? Even as Paul is writing this, people are already beginning to say that resurrection bit was made up. Like they were, they were skeptic. They were skeptics. They, they didn't believe it. And so Paul says, all right, well, if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. In fact, if there's no historical resurrection, then Christians are the most of all religions, of all people in all the earth. They're the most to be pitied because they have a hope that is just foolish. Because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians won't be raised from the dead. And remember all that stuff I said about delayed gratification? That's foolishness if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. See, Christianity is very concerned, not with the principles alone of its belief, but with the historicity of Jesus. 
the historical verifiability of his death and resurrection. And Paul is concerned with it. And he says, look, I delivered to you, this to you of first importance. First importance. The first importance is not social justice, which we, we would affirm that we need to do acts of justice and mercy. The first importance is not behavior modification, which we would affirm that there are things in your life that you know just as well as we do need to be changed. But Christianity isn't just a... a a method of behavior modification. First importance is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And now listen to what he says. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Don't believe me? Go ask Peter, he saw. And then to the 12. Don't believe Peter? Well, there are 12 more. Go ask them. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Okay, now why does he say most of whom are still alive? For that exact reason. Paul is very concerned with you being able to go and verify what he's saying. Now look, there are a lot of things you can say about the Bible. There are a lot of things you you can say about Christianity. But you cannot say that it is just a good book that has some principles but is not attempting to root itself in history. You can't say that it's making claims about a historical person named Jesus who died and was raised from the dead. So that leaves you really with two options. Three. The first option is that it's just a book of craziness. It's nonsense. If not nonsense, then just clever myth. Right? Like the Greeks and and the Romans and most ancient cultures. Either it's that, or it's a bunch of people who've collaborated and conspired to lie. Or it's truth from God. Those are three options. And look, I'm not saying that I'm going to convince you of the third here, but I want you to come into this with intellectual and, and philosophical honesty. It cannot just be a good book. It's either a lie or truth from God. Because it is so concerned with the historicity of Jesus. Because not only did he appear to the 12, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul wants you to know that this claim of the resurrection is a historical claim. Believe it or not. But this is what the gospel says. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot walk in the light of the gospel and not believe this truth, that the, the, this person, Jesus, he lived. That's verifiable, even outside of Christianity. But that he died and that he rose again in bodily form. It's rooted in history. And this is important for you because you can find hope in that. And that's why we respond in the way that Paul says, because, or sorry, that the author of Hebrews says, is because he says, now, in light of all this, if Jesus is who we say we are and who we're attesting that he is, then his word is straight from God. And if he says you can have salvation, you can. If he's made purification for your sins, trust him. Don't don't turn away from him. If he is who we say he is, if he was raised from the dead, then he's God. Don't look to other gods. Don't look to Buddha. And, 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 And to sort of go back to what I was just saying about the historical context, Buddhism is not concerned with whether or not there was a Buddha. It's concerned with principles. And whether or not there was a Buddha that, that started it all really does little to change the faith. You still practice what you practice. Even Islam, consider this, even Islam, the Quran says very little about Muhammad historically. They're not concerned with it. If Khadijah wasn't the reason that Muhammad did whatever, that doesn't change the Muslim faith. Because of this reason alone, and then we'll be done. And all these faiths say the same thing. They say, you follow these principles. You keep these rules. You better yourself. You find enlightenment. You find wisdom. You self-improve. 
And so if it's you, if you're the focus of your improvement, if you're the focus of your salvation, well, then the history of all that stuff doesn't matter. But only Christianity, only Christianity says it's not you. It's a person. It's someone else who is the source of your salvation. It's someone else who saves you. It's Jesus. It doesn't say turn inside. It says turn to Jesus. And so now if Jesus isn't king, historical king, who lived and died and was risen again, then you're turning to, might as well be turning to Mickey Mouse. Let's just turn to Jesus. And so as we do that, as we do these things, as we believe and trust, here's what we find is that we have peace. Because not only has every temptation that we've suffered or endured been endured by Jesus, but also every hurt, every failure, he bore it on the cross. Every joy, he rejoices with you. He loves you. He loves you. And he died for you. And so this year, as you go through, as, as, as you make these plans, as you begin to think of what new things are on the horizon, and let me tell you, we, we, we know about new things on the horizon. You can proceed in your strength or you can trust in Jesus. And so if you're not a believer, right now is your opportunity, as, as the author of Hebrews says, not to reject the salvation that comes from Jesus, but rather to, to run into a God who loves you, into the arms of, of a Savior who loves you. And if you're a believer, now is your chance to repent, to return, to remind yourself of the gospel. Jesus loves you. He cares for you and he takes care of you. And one of the ways that he takes care of you is through the church. And now, interestingly enough, not only does he take care of the church through the church, but he's also called the church to show his, to show his provision and his sustenance for those outside who are in need. Um, and so as you consider the gospel and the spiritual needs, let's also remember our brothers and sisters, both within the church and within the human family who are in need. Um, and one of the ways we do that is through benevolence. We, we collect um, a benevolence offering that is outside of the general fund, and it's, it's sole use um, is to provide for those who, who need. Uh, my wife and I have been recipients of benevolence, um, and it greatly ministered to us because you were ministering to us through that. You may not know who it is that you're ministering to, but you are, and as the deacons allot these funds, they're also saying, this is, this is just a glimpse of how Jesus loves you. This is just a glimpse of the sustenance and the provision that you have in Jesus. So um, I'm going to pray, and we're, we're going to do that. And I would ask you as we pray to consider this. Will you trust Jesus? Because he is greater. Let's pray. We're thankful, Lord God, for the manger. For the shepherds and the angels singing and Mary and Joseph and the wise men. We're, we're thankful for Christmas not because uh, it's a fun time to remember family and gifts and not because it's a chance to um, win any sort of battle, but because we get to remember that you loved us so much that you became flesh. We get to remember Jesus. We get to look at Jesus and his life and we get to see the full radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature, the one who created the earth, the one who made purification for sins, the one who you raised from the dead, who sits at your right hand and is coming back. We get to remember him, and we are so thankful. And as a people, I pray that we would remember him, that as we give, we would remember him. As we prepare for 2014, we would remember him. As we love and parent our families, as we love and care for our spouses, as we hurt, as we suffer through sickness, as we suffer through emotional pain, as we suffer through brokenness, as we fight temptation, as we rejoice in, in the new things that you've given us, new life, new, new prospects, new hope, God, that we would remember Jesus, that he would be the central and defining 
figure, not only in this book, not only in this religion that we claim, but in our lives and that we would display him, that we would make much of Jesus who is central to the entire universe. So I pray that this year would be a year for proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's in that name, the name of Jesus the Christ, that I pray. Amen. God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good so that you may do his will, working things in us that are pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.